Good evening. It is good to be together on the Lord's Day. Looks like we've got a good crowd here for Sunday night, and we are thankful for your presence. We do have questions and answers tonight. I've got a number of good questions, and so I'm going to try not to be too long-winded, but uh, let's get started. I've got 12 questions ready. We'll see how time progresses. Question number one. Let's see if this will work. There we go. Question number one. What does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? And if you quench it, can you still be saved by trying to repent of your sins? This particular question, I believe, was sent by somebody online. We have a lot of people that watch our services online now, either live or during the week, and uh, several of them send questions in, and that's great. I appreciate all the questions that we can get. What does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? You've got to keep in mind that in the first century, they had miraculous gifts from the Holy Spirit. They could speak in tongues, they could prophesy, they could heal. Uh, we don't have these today. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, Timothy was told by Paul, stir up the gift of God which is in you. That is, he was telling him, use your miraculous gift. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, he told him, do not neglect the gift of God that is in you. That meant, use this miraculous gift. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 32, we're told the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And what that meant is, if a person had a miraculous ability of the Holy Spirit, they controlled it. The Holy Spirit didn't take control of them and make them speak like you see in, in some religions today where the Spirit, people talk about being slayed in the Spirit and the Spirit takes control over them. That's not the way it worked in the Bible. A person could use that ability or they could choose not to use that ability. And so when Paul tells Timothy, stir up the gift, he's saying, use it. When he says, neglect not the gift, he's saying, uh, be sure to take advantage of this miraculous gift. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, when he says, quench not the Spirit, I think it means the same thing as 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. It meant people in the first century who had miraculous abilities could stifle it, but he's telling them uh, not to do that. Now, the question asks, can you be saved today uh, by trying to repent of your sins? Really, this gift of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous abilities, this had nothing to do with repentance or or salvation. Uh, certainly, if a person's obeyed the gospel today and they will be faithful, uh, they can be saved. This verse is, has nothing to do with that. All right, question number two. This came from one of the kids. We've got a couple of questions from kids tonight, and I love to get questions from the kids. Sometimes they ask some of the best questions. Question number one, or question number two here, why in the Bible does it tell us not to be jealous but in Joshua 24, it says that God is a jealous God. That's a good question, isn't it? Joshua 24, 19 says, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done you good. Now, what's the point? First, we need to understand that the word jealous is used in two different ways. We sometimes use the word, or um, we use the word jealous as a synonym for envy. And that means I want what you have. You, you have it and I see it and I want it for myself. I'm, I'm jealous. That type of jealousy 
is wrong. A second way that the word jealous can be used is to describe the feeling that you have when someone takes that which is rightfully yours. That is not wrong. Joshua 24, 19 is saying that God is jealous when the people worship an idol because that's wrong. God is the only one that should be worshipped. And so when they give their worship to an idol, that's rightfully his, and he's giving it to someone else, and, and that makes God jealous. It's similar to the way that a man would be jealous if another man flirts with his wife. He'd be jealous about that. And that type of jealousy is not wrong. He's the only one as her husband who has the right to flirt with her. Now, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20 describes the sin of jealousy, and the idea being described there is being envious of what somebody else has. That is, a person might be a jealous because another person has a nicer car or a fancier home, or maybe they're jealous of their abilities, their athletic abilities or their looks or uh, their, um, their ability to speak or whatever it is. And that is, they have it, and, oh, I wish I could have that for myself. That type is wrong, but uh, what's described about God or a husband toward his wife, that type of jealousy is not something that's wrong. All right, here's the next one. This one is also from one of the kids. Why were there giants in the Bible and there are not giants today? Oh, I see I wrote that wrong, didn't I? And there are giants today. Why are there not giants today is what it should have said. Why are there giants in the Bible but there are not giants today? First, there are a lot of giants mentioned in the Bible. In fact, when I got to looking, I was surprised how many times this came up. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, just before the flood, the Lord says there were giants in the earth in those days. In Numbers 13, 33, when the spies returned from spying out the promised land, they said this, we saw giants. That is the descendants of Anak. They came from giants. And they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight and in ours. That is, we seem really small next to these guys, and they looked at us and said, you're really small. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, you remember there is a, a, a giant named Goliath. He was nine foot nine inches tall. Some texts say nine foot six inches, but he's a big guy. Deuteronomy 3 and verse 11 mentions a giant who is named Og. He was the king of Bashan. He was a little over 12 feet tall. And so these were all giants. In fact, I put together uh, some charts so that you can get an idea. Uh, here is David. It's estimated the average height uh, of a Jew when he was a young man would have been about five foot two. And then in the middle, this is Shaquille O'Neal, former NBA player. Uh, he was seven foot one approximately. And then here is Goliath's height, which according to the Masoretic text, he was nine foot six. So you can imagine him standing next to Shaquille O'Neal. This is a big fella. Uh, here is another height comparison. Um, this is an average man today. The average height of a man in America is 5 foot 10. The next one is Andre the Giant. I don't know if young people today would remember Andre the Giant, but when uh, I was uh, younger, he was uh, in a lot of the movies, and he was a big, big guy, 7 foot 4. And then you can see Goliath here at nine foot six. And so if you look at the average man and you look at Goliath, you can see that this person is a giant. Now the question is, what happened to the giants? Why don't we have them 
today? Well, we've got some people that are pretty big today. We had Andre the Giant, but nobody that compares to this. It appears that the majority of them apparently died off in the flood. I think that's the reason that Genesis chapter 6, immediately before the flood, the Bible says there were giants in the earth in those days. I think the Lord is telling us they were there before the flood. Now, we do read about some after the flood. So what's that about? Since Noah was a stock of uh, smaller people, or we'd say average people, most of his descendants were of that same stature. However, some of the genes to produce giants survived through the wife of Ham. Remember, son had, uh, he had, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. His son Ham married a wife, and they had a son named Canaan. Canaan had some descendants who were giants, according to Numbers chapter 13. So some of the genes descended through Ham, and there were some descendants who were giants. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, 19 through 21, Moses records that God had the people destroy the giants who dwelt in Ammon so that the children of Israel could possess the land. Those giants who apparently descended through Canaan, uh, through a man named Anak, so you trace it, you've got Noah, you've got Ham, you've got Canaan, eventually a man named Anak, his sons were giants, uh, they eventually became extinct. King Og of Bashan was the last giant to inhabit Palestine east of Jordan, according to Deuteronomy 3 and verse 11. So what happened to the giants? Most of them died in the flood. Some of them were killed as the children of Israel were coming and taking the promised land. Were there any left after that? I don't know. And if they were, what happened to them? I don't know. That, that's one of the things that the Bible just does not tell us the answer to. But I enjoyed digging. It was a good, uh, good question. All right, here is the next one. Number four. Should a Christian use transgender pronouns? Should we be concerned that if we don't use them, that we may lose our jobs or be taken to court? Uh, what this question means is this. Suppose that a man decides that he is a woman, and then he, de he demands that other people refer to him that way that other people refer to him as a she, or her, or Mrs. Should we do that? Should we be worried about our jobs if we don't? Brethren, while Christians should certainly seek to be polite, respect cannot extend to endorsing a, an idea that the Bible says is false. You know, a few years ago, there was a Bible put out that was called the Queen James Bible. And in that Bible, they took all the masculine references to God and they removed them so that it could be a gender-neutral Bible. And some people today even want to refer to God as she in order to make a point. Political correctness aside, a Christian cannot participate in that. God refers to himself as he, and that's the way that he wants it done. We can't disrespect him for the sake of political correctness. You know, I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they would not bow down to the golden statue. They would not do it for any reason. Certainly, it would have been easy for them to rationalize this. They could say, well, you know, we'll go along now and we'll teach them later. They could say, well, we don't want to be offensive. They could say, we don't want to get killed. Could they have gotten killed? Yeah, I mean, that's what the king was threatening. Now, they weren't concerned about losing their job or being sued. They were worried about being killed, but they said, we won't do it. 
I think about Mordecai in the book of Esther and how he would not bow down himself to Haman, even though it appears that all the other Jews bowed down to Haman, but he said, I'm not going to do it. He would not compromise himself. When I was in the Air Force, in the military, if there is a chaplain, you can call himself either by his rank or by his religious title. Most of them, I found, preferred to be called by their religious title. And I remember having a conversation one day with a chaplain, and I referred to him as uh, Captain so-and-so, and and he said, I prefer to be called uh, Reverend so-and-so. And And I was polite, but I said, uh, sir, I'm more comfortable with calling you Captain. And he dropped it. And I was within my legal military rights to do that, but I wasn't going to participate in referring to him by an exalted religious title. Now, with all of that said, the question said, uh, should we be concerned that we might lose our jobs or be taken to court? Yeah, it's probably going to happen. I think the day is coming when we're going to face that sort of thing. There's going to be a lot of persecutions that are going to come to Christians in the future, but we don't compromise because of that. Now, with all of that said, I want to add this. We should not be mocking of people. If you've got a man who thinks he's a woman, this is a troubled individual, it's a confused individual, maybe it's a person who's tied up in in sin, we could say, well, you know, I'm a Christian and you're a nut job. I mean, we could say something like that, and you will completely lose your influence forever over somebody like that. Um, We need, you could get on Facebook and you could post memes that insult and jab at people like this, And then people are going to look at Christians and say, well, they're mean and they're hateful and you're going to lose your influence. Or we could tread lightly, do what's right, try to be polite, and try to have influence and convert these people. And, of course, that's what Christians need to do. All right, question number five. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16 is a passage in which Paul seems to be stating his opinion. How do we make spiritual application of these circumstances? I want to read you some of these passages in 1 Corinthians 7 that many people believe that Paul is stating his opinion. In 1 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul says this, But I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. People say it wasn't commanded from God. This was just Paul stating his opinion. Verse 12, he says, But to the rest, I say, not the Lord... If a brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And they'll say, see, he says, I'm saying it, not the Lord. Verse 40, but she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I have the Spirit of God. And they'll say, see, Paul even says this is his judgment. And so people have claimed that Paul is merely stating his opinion, and these are not commandments from God. And so the question says, you know, How do you make application under these circumstances? Let me address these three verses very quickly here. 1 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul says, I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. This verse is written in light of the current persecution. They were being severely persecuted or were about to be because of the Roman government. And what he was saying is, in light of this current persecution, if you get married it's going to bring you some additional problems. And so what he's saying is, it's better not to get married. And then he adds this, I'm saying this as a concession. That is, this is an option. It's not a commandment. He's saying, I'm not commanding that you can't get married. That's the point. 
He's not saying, I'm throwing out my opinion, this is not a commandment from God. He is saying, this is an option under the circumstances. I am not forbidding people to marry. In fact, he goes on and says, it's better to marry than to burn. And the idea is to burn in lust. And so he's making this statement. Under the circumstances, the option, the concession is not to get married. It's going to save you some grief. But... It's not a command. You can get married if you want to. As a matter of fact, it's better to get married than to burn in lust and it to cause you to sin. All right? The next passage, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say this, not the Lord. People say Paul is stating something different than what God stated. That's not what he's saying at all. What Paul is stating in that passage is simply this. He's referring back to the fact that in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus stated some specific things about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what he is saying here is, I am adding something else that the Lord did not specifically say. That doesn't mean it didn't come from God. Hold that thought, because I'm going to come back to it in just a second. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 40, he says, But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And people say, ah, Paul's just giving his opinion. But then he adds this, and I also have the Spirit of God. Why does he add that statement? Why does he say, according to my judgment, and I also have the Spirit of God? What he is saying is, I have inspired judgment. I'm giving you my judgment, and I have the Holy Spirit inspiring my judgment. What he is saying is, this comes from God. So what's Paul's point? He's got inspired judgment. This is judgment from God. This is not merely Paul's opinion. So how do you make application of 1 Corinthians 7? You make it just like these came from God himself, because that is the point. He is not saying that he's saying something different from the Lord. When he says in verse number 12, to the rest, say I, not the Lord, what he's saying is the Lord laid out some specific things in Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and here's some additional things the Lord did not previously state, but I by inspiration am stating them, but they still come from God. Why? He said, because I have the Spirit of God. And all Scripture comes by inspiration of God. So all of these things in 1 Corinthians 7, it is just as if the Lord spoke them himself because they all came from the same source. All right, good question. Number six, I have been giving new thought to Halloween. I see nothing wrong with dressing up and getting candy despite what the original reasons were. However, I'm wondering about kids and adults dressing up as things like witches and monsters. Is this right? Also, what about visiting pretend haunted houses with actors? Uh, this is a good question because uh, Halloween is next month. Um, I don't believe that there is anything wrong with practicing Halloween within certain limitations. I have heard some people say, well, Halloween was originally a pagan, and uh, they respected uh, evil things, and so because of that, um, because of its origin, we can't celebrate it. Well, Thursday was originally named in honor of Thor. That was a, a heathen god. But we call it Thursday not because we're worshiping Thor or celebrating Thor. Over the years, it has taken on a completely different meaning. And I believe Halloween, though its origins might have been one thing, what it has become is a fun event for children. Now, I do not believe that when a child... Uh, dresses up 
and he goes and gets candy. I don't think he has anything pagan on his mind. I don't think he's celebrating sinful deities. I don't think his parents are trying to lift up sinful deities. With all that said, Christians still should not celebrate, um, Christians should not violate Christian principles. That's the way to say it. You know, many Halloween costumes are immodest, especially for adults. A Christian doesn't have the right to dress immodestly just because it's Halloween. Um, I don't think a Christian should dress up as a bloody axe murderer or something like that. You take something that's wicked and evil, Christians shouldn't celebrate that. Um, let me shift gears a little bit. I am personally a little ill at ease about celebrating death. You know, we've got folks here that work in hospitals or maybe with the military and an ambulance and you're around a lot of death. Death was the consequence of sin. It seems to me to celebrate death can't be from heaven. Celebrating death is not from heaven. Life is from heaven. Celebrating death is from hell. And so Christians ought to avoid that type of thing. When I was a teenager, we used to go to what I call the chop em up movies. Uh, Freddy Krueger came out. Nightmare on Elm Street came out when I was a, a teenager. And we used to love to go to, to see uh, Freddy Krueger movies and the Halloween movies came out. Um, I have since concluded that that has to be the opposite of what a Christian should be filling his mind with. You take a, a murderer who just is going to chop up these people for the sake of his enjoyment, and, and then we watch that um, murder and death and perversion of that sort is not the sort of thing the Bible would indicate that a Christian should fill his mind with. Now, with all of that said, I know some Christians feel that it's wrong to celebrate Halloween in any form. They would say you can't even dress your kid like Batman. They can't even dress like a princess. Uh, I would encourage you not to violate your personal convictions, Romans 14, 22, and 23. Uh, but for everybody else, uh, I like Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> all right, number seven. If a non-Christian were to win the lottery, $50 million, for example, and then sometime thereafter obeys the gospel, what should be done with the money won from the lottery? Again, he ought to give it to the preacher or GBN or... Um, no, I'm kidding. This is a very interesting question. Uh, I would say this first. Legally, it's his money. Uh, the lottery or gambling, of course, is... Uh, taking money from other people in an immoral way. That is what gambling is. But I don't know how he can possibly give it all back. Because if he won it through the lottery, this money came from thousands of people or millions of people who bought these tickets. We talked about in a sermon on repentance a while back that uh, restitution is not always possible. So I don't know how you make restitution for this. How would you give it back? Uh, I think that he should find ways to take this money that belonged to the devil and use it to God's glory. I knew a man who a number of years ago found some money. In fact, he found a lot of money, and he kept it. Years later, he regretted it, and he repented of it, and he wanted to make it right, but he didn't know who the money belonged to. It was cash. He, he didn't know, and so he wanted to make restitution, and so this is what he decided to do. He took the money and he gave that amount to the church because he said, I just don't feel good about keeping it. And he said, I want to make restitution in the best way that I possibly 
can. And I think that was probably right. That, that was actually a good solution to that good thinking on his part. Number eight, can a mature, knowledgeable Christian be guilty of sins of ignorance? Please give examples. I was sure a mature Christian can be guilty of sins of ignorance. I suppose to say, to say that he could not be guilty of a sin of ignorance would be to argue that there's nothing that he's ignorant of. And uh, none of us reach that point. Now, admittedly, after a man's been a Christian for a number of years, he should have a pretty good grasp on the basics. He ought to understand things like drinking and fornication and theft and things like that. But there are certainly going to be some things he still doesn't understand because we're all growing. We never reach the state of perfection where we know all things and there's nothing of which I'm ignorant. You know, Psalm 19 and verse 12, David writes this, who can understand his error? Cleanse me, Lord, from secret faults, the King James says. The idea of the secret faults in the King James is sins of ignorance. David was saying, Lord, please forgive me of my sins of ignorance. Forgive me when I sinned and I don't know I've sinned. I would argue that David was a man of spiritual maturity, and yet he's arguing, or he's praying rather, that God would cleanse him of his sins of ignorance. The person says, can you give examples of a sin of ignorance that a mature, a mature Christian might commit, I would suggest maybe pride. Maybe pride is creeping into my life and I'm not even aware of it. Maybe greed. Do you think a mature Christian could start being greedy and it slips in and he doesn't even know it? Maybe prejudice. Um, maybe I passed up opportunities to teach other people the gospel and, and God's holding me accountable and, and it doesn't even register with me. Sure, I think those things will always be with us. But the more I hear sermons about sin, the more I study about sin, the more I learn, and hopefully there'll be fewer and fewer things that fall into this category. You know, I suspect until we die, there will be sins of ignorance. But aren't you thankful the Bible teaches that as Christians, as we walk in the light, we're cleansed of those sins, and we can be righteous with God and know that we have eternal life, 1 John 5.13, right? Number nine, if a Gentile in the Old Testament during the Mosaic period, during the law of Moses, was made aware of the one true God, and he wanted to leave his idols or atheism or whatever it was and follow God, would he be obligated to become a Jew? Or would he establish himself in a patriarchal relationship, not being of a Jewish pedigree? Would it matter if he or she was aware of the Jewish system? Uh, this is obviously a deep question. This is obviously a person who has given a lot of thought to this. But the question is this. Under the Old Testament, if a Gentile who lived while the Mosaic period was going on, if he meets a Jew and he learns about the one true God and he wants to be faithful to the one true God, did he have to become a Jew? I would say no. And the reason is, my mind immediately goes to the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah was a Jew, and God sent him to preach to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is one of the leading Gentile cities of that day. Now, you know the story. Jonah goes and preaches to them, and they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 8 says they cried mightily unto God. And verse 10 says that God was pleased, and he decided to spare them. But there's absolutely no indication that they became Jews. Now, 
A Gentile could become a Jew if he wanted to. There were two different ways he could do that. He could become a proselyte is the term. That is, he's a convert to the Jewish religion. Uh, there were some uh, Gentile proselytes who embraced Judaism, but they weren't circumcised. They were known as strangers in the gate. And then there were some who were circumcised. They became Jews in the full sense. Matthew 23 and verse 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when you've won him, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. What he is saying is, they converted to Judaism, they embraced it, they were circumcised, they were assigned a tribe, they were a full proselyte, and then they became evil like these people that converted them. So, sure, they could become a proselyte, in the sense of being a stranger in the gate, not circumcised. They could be circumcised and become a full Jew, or apparently, based on what we see in Nineveh, they could continue worshiping in whatever system the Gentiles were under at that time. Number 10. All right, this is an MDR question. That stands for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Person A marries person B, and they get a divorce for a reason other than adultery. Later, person A marries person C, and they get a divorce for a reason other than adultery. Does person C now have the right to remarry? And if person C does have the right to remarry, what would that person need to do to make things right before God? You got all that? MDR questions can get confusing, can't they? So let's run through this. I decided that these are a lot easier when you have a chart. And so I put this in a chart form. Person A is married to person B, and they get a divorce it's not for adultery. Person A, that is the man, then marries person C, and they get a divorce, and it's not for adultery. The question then is, what about person C? What is her situation? Does she have the right to remarry, and what does she need to do to fix all this? So let's go through this. You've got person A and person B. They get a divorce, it is not for adultery. This is what you have to understand. God only separates for two reasons. God separates for fornication and for death. And so, if they get a divorce not for adultery, in the eyes of God, they are still married. So, if person A, the man, who is still married to his wife B, if he marries person C, this is what you actually have, is A is married to B, and he's married to C. That's why Matthew 19.9 says that they are committing adultery. Adultery is a sin committed by a married person. The man is committing adultery with person C because he's still married to his wife B. That helps with the chart, doesn't it? It's much easier to understand. Now, the question really is, what is the situation with person C? Person C is not married because what she did was try to be married to somebody who's already married. God won't join a person to somebody who's already married. God won't join people except in accordance with his law. God will not join two men together. He won't join two women together. I know you can get a piece of paper from the government that says you're married, but God doesn't join you. Likewise, God will not join a woman to a man who's already married to another woman. He won't do that. 
So when C married A, God did not join them. They were not really married. What they were doing was committing adultery. So C has never been married, unless there's some other information that's left out of this question, like she'd been previously married. But I don't know all that. I'm just going by what's in the question. So C needs to repent and get out of that marriage. And C, assuming there's no other circumstances, C would have the right to remarry. All right. Question number 11. Let's see, it's 6.45. I think I'll do this one and I will stop. Did all of Israel leave Egypt with Moses? I heard a Jewish rabbi say that they did not. Uh, this was a new one on me. I have always heard and I've always been taught that all of the Israelites left Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 verses 37 and 38 says uh, about 600,000 people left Egypt. Numbers chapter 1 and verse 46 gives a more precise total. It says 603,550 men aged 20 and up left. If you add women and children, that would be a number around 2 million Jews who left Egypt. Now, did some of them stay? If 2 million left? Well, I did some digging on the internet and this is what I found. I found that some Jewish rabbis do teach that not all of Israel left Egypt. In fact, they say only about a fifth of the Jews left Egypt. Now you say, where in the world do they get that? They base this conclusion on a passage in Exodus 13 and verse 18 that says the children of Israel went up armed out of the land of Egypt. They say that the Hebrew word for armed has been mistranslated, and they say that this word actually is a word that can mean one-fifth. And therefore, they believe this passage is saying that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt, one-fifth of them. Also, there are some statements in the Torah that make similar arguments, and so I guess the answer is, I don't know. I don't know anything except uh, what the Bible says, and I don't read anything else in the Bible that indicates that there were any Jews who were left behind in the land of Egypt. Um, I think it would be pretty unpleasant for them, those who were left behind after the plague and after the rest of them had gone, because you remember how the Egyptians and Pharaoh felt about this, and so it's not going to be good for those who were left behind. Okay, I'll stop there for tonight. Thank you for the good questions. I appreciate them so much. We always want to extend the invitation it may be that there's someone here tonight who's ready to become a Christian by obeying the gospel. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, we want to give you that opportunity. If you're here tonight and you are a child of God, a Christian, and you've been unfaithful, and you want to come forward tonight and ask for the prayers of your brethren, we would be very honored if we could do that. Tonight, you need to respond to the Lord's invitation. Won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song?